The reading this morning is Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 to 34. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. It was so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Thank you, Alex. So the reading's on your leaflet, so if you keep it in front of you. Have you ever visited a show home on a new build estate? Uh, You can see them down at Seaford at the moment. And if you go early enough in the life of one of these new build estates, what you see is chaos, mess, like mounds of earth, sections of concrete pipe waiting waiting to be installed, um, dust. But in the midst of all this chaos, sticking out like a sore thumb, it's a pristine landscape street with glistening new show homes. Like this street, I've got a little video there, Robert. Like this street, what you're doing is you're capturing a glimpse, a sneak preview of how things will be when all the chaos, all the dirt has been ordered into streets, into blocks, and into places people will call home, or that landlords will call investment properties, more likely, but... Well, today we're getting two encounters with Jesus where he gives us a sneak peek preview of his rule as God's king. Specifically, what he's going to do with the disorder that we all experience in creation and then what he's going to do with evil. So just to get you up to speed where we're up to, we're looking at this new kingdom Jesus is bringing from Matthew's gospel. And Matthew's been showing us Jesus is God's long-promised rescuer king. That's played out in Jesus' resisting temptation, teaching with all authority, and showing his authority over disease, miraculously healing people with just a word, just a touch. And Matthew told us last week, Jesus' healing disease is a foretaste, pointing to a bigger thing, a sneak preview that he has come to take our sin and its consequences onto himself to win for us the not just healing but the permanent cure of forgiveness of our sin that separates us from God. 
And then last week we saw Jesus has just given two would-be disciples a warning. One who thinks it's going to be an easy ride, that Jesus warns it's going to be tough because of the kind of king Jesus is, is one who will suffer in our place, giving up his rights, not claiming them. The other is warned to not delay, to get on with following Jesus as first priority. So that's, our set, that's where we're up to. That's our setup. So the questions hanging in the air are, just how powerful a king is Jesus, really? And what is he going to do with that power? How powerful a king is he? What is he going to do with that power? Just three headings today in your leaflet, if you like that kind of thing. Rough sea, rough crowd, tough crowd. So first, rough sea. We see that Jesus has authority to restore to order disordered nature. Verse 23. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Now, some of these disciples had been uh, working these waters their whole lives. So these aren't day trippers spooked by a bit of choppy weather. They're frightened for their lives because this really is a furious storm. The word used is the same as for an earthquake erupting. And note the detail, the waves swept over the boat. So they're in real, genuine danger of sinking. And Jesus' response is to have a snooze. He nods off. Now, research shows that napping during the day regularly can help your heart improve your mood, and enhance your memory. At least that's my excuse anyway. But research also shows if your boat sinks, you'll probably drown. So what's going on here? Well, we're seeing what we should expect to see if Jesus is a, really is a, a human being, if he's fully human, and if he really is God the Son. He's human, so he's tired. He wants to carry on preaching, and so his best prep right now is 40 winks. A bit of a snooze. But if he really does have as much authority as he seems to have had so far, he doesn't need to worry about whether he's going to get there or not. He doesn't need to worry about the weather. So there's this big storm. Verse 25, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You've got to feel sorry for disciples a bit, haven't you? Um, Jesus tells them off. But Israelites in general were landlubbers. They didn't like the sea. They associated the, ki- the sea. You'll see pictures of it throughout the Old Testament. They associated the sea with chaos, with the realm of the dead, with the underworld. So aren't the disciples right to be afraid? Well, they are, but only in, the, only in the same way as the man with leprosy that we met, the centurion and his servant, Peter's mother-in-law, should have been afraid. If Jesus, this man in the boat, Jesus, is just a bloke, sure, be afraid. 
But Jesus has been showing that he's God's king with all authority. And he said he wants to go to the other side of the lake. And he's so sure it's going to happen, he has a sleep. So Jesus helps the disciples in their faith, their little faith, by showing them something spectacular. Now, if you're like me, you've grown up in Sunday school knowing Jesus calms a storm. You know, it's Jesus, he calms a storm. We're kind of used to it, over-familiar. But the Old Testament is clear. Calming the sea is something only God can do. There's a few examples. For example, Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Only God can calm seas. The right question for us to ask ourselves as we follow Jesus is the same question that he asked the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes following Jesus, I'm afraid. Afraid of talking about him to strangers. Even more afraid of talking about him to loved ones and friends. Afraid our efforts to make and grow disciples, to reach the lost in the southern suburbs, to grow our church for God's glory. Afraid it'll stall, come to nothing. Sometimes afraid because bad things seem to happen whenever we try to do something new, especially evangelism. And I'll be afraid a bit on Monday morning, standing right here, 8.30 a.m., I'm giving a talk to Woodcroft College's staff, uh, their staff worship. Like the kids are not in. All 150 staff will be here. We're doing a talk in their staff worship. I'll be scared. You can pray for me. But remember who is in the boat with us. Remember who told us to get in the boat in the first place. Faced with the mission we have with life and death and what happens after we die, on our own in the boat, or relying on anybody else being in that boat with us, we'd be right to fear. But with Jesus, trusting in God's all-powerful rescuer king, what's the worst that can happen? Suffering? Yeah? This miracle isn't a promise that God will reverse every calamity for us in the here and now. Like the disciples, we're in that same framework of, a, of creation under God's curse for sin. We might die, physically die. Sure, that could happen. But trusting in Jesus, the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. We have hope. With Jesus, we have the promise of life after death, resurrection, a place at the table in heaven's eternal banquet party. And the confidence of knowing that what God wants to get done, he'll get done. So in fact, the disciples end up transforming their fear from a dark fear of drowning to an awe-filled awe God-filled, Godly fear 
of Jesus. Who is this man? We're not immune to suffering from the frustrations, dangers, and disorder of this fallen world. But when we do suffer, we can do so knowing it won't always be like this. That we're saved into a new, redeemed creation where everything is perfect, everything in its place, working properly. And it's Jesus who needed a snooze, yet who even the wind and waves obey, who will make it so. So rough seas and rough crowd. Uh, This next incident, Jesus demonstrates his authority over evil. Verse 28. When he arrived at the other side in in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Now, I'm used to, I've grown up with British customer service. Customer service here is great, but I've grown up with British customer service, the model for which is barely concealed contempt at your very existence. But this is an even rougher welcoming party than that, isn't it? Now, the Gospels don't, sorry, the Gospels do just take it as read that demons or unclean spirits, they're called in Mark's Gospel, are a thing. Uh, what are they? Most scholars say they're fallen angels. Uh, some scholars, and I'm quite persuaded of this, say they could be the spirits of dead people, ghosts. See, the Bible conceives of the universe in three layers. Heaven, where God is, and angels. Earth, where we are, and under the earth. The underworld, place of death. God's place, our place, the place of the dead. And if creation is messed up by sin, it seems reasonable that the barrier between the underworld and this world could also be messed up. And so occasionally, well, more so in the Gospels, but occasionally in life we see, like we sometimes see the criminal underworld pop up into normal life, like a bikey gang assassination at an airport or something. The underworld pops up into our world. What, it doesn't matter what they are, whatever their nature, they seem bad news, don't they? These, de- then these demons recognize who Jesus is. Verse 29. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come to here to torture us before the appointed time? Jesus isn't scared. The demons are scared of him. And they've got great theology, haven't they? They've got better theology than a lot of Church of England vicars. They seem to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, God's appointed judge. So they know they are to be doomed, doomed at the very hand of Jesus. They're just not expecting it here and now. And they're worried that this means that they're due even worse punishment than they thought. But they don't argue with Jesus. They don't challenge him or attack him. They beg him for mercy. Verse 30. Some distance from them was a large herd of pigs. Uh, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. So remember I said in scripture, bodies of water, the sea is associated with death, disorder, the underworld. So in other words, what is going on is that Jesus is showing he has the power and authority to send evil 
back where it came from. You don't need me to tell you there's still evil in the world that we have to cope with. Uh, Growing up, we always had foster children in our home, um, in our care. And just for a few of them, it never ceased to amaze me just how cruel people can be, not, not even just to strangers, but to their own children. There's evil in the world. Now, I don't expect that routinely you or I will come up against demons. I know some people at our church have had that kind of spooky experience. But I do expect that whenever we do evangelism or something to help us grow, for, I do expect a heap of pastoral issues to crop up. We can expect Satan and his forces to scheme to try and stop us and others from hearing God's word to stop people being saved. But evil won't win. It can't win because what Jesus shows us here is he has absolute authority to save us from evil. So say you have a bad night tonight uh, and you wake up convinced there's some evil force present. What, What do you do? Well, ask that question again. Why are you so afraid? What can they do, really? I mean, all Satan had left was to accuse us, to point to our sin and the debt that's caused us, point that out to God so that in his true and holy just nature, he would, be, he would condemn us. But Jesus has stepped in, given himself up to suffer, and de- suffer death on the cross to pay for our sin, give us his perfect record. So we can't be accused anymore. Evil's final desperate trick has been defeated and the rest of the stack of cards is tumbling. So please take this away from this incident. Matthew wants us to see Jesus' power and authority over evil, over the spiritual unseen realm, just as he has authority over the wind and waves, over disease. That's the main point. Don't distract from that. But just a little sidebar since we've raised the spooky stuff about spiritual warfare. See, when it comes to Satan, evil, demons, unclean spirits, how should we as disciples of Jesus think about all that stuff? Again, ask the question, why are you so afraid? We mustn't be naive. As I said, evil's on its way out, but it's still around. So, for example, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Uh, Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Well, I've observed over the years what a lot of Christians do with that is become very fearful and very combative. Looking for Satan's schemes behind every human scheme, behind every sin, every kind of suffering. Coming up with elaborate schemes to recognize and exorcise demons. Well, the trouble is, that's a whole lot more fuss about the forces of darkness than the Bible makes. A lot more fuss than the Bible makes. Christians are never called upon in the Bible, never called upon to directly engage with Satan, demons, or any spiritual baddies. Not to directly engage. 
Jesus did. He told the apostles to get into that stuff. But if that job is for us, you'd expect, like in the rest of the Bible, like, uh, the rest of the epistle, you'd expect instructions on how to do that in the rest of the New Testament, ways to live that out. So let's go to some bits of the Bible briefly where evil spirits are brought up and it tells us what to do about them. So in Ephesians 6, I read one verse of it, Paul draws our attention to the fact that we're in a spiritual battle against evil spiritual forces. So what to do about it? We won't read it now. Read Ephesians 6 later. But to summarize, put on the armor of God. And what is the armor of God? It's the gospel. It's sticking with Jesus. It's knowing the truth about him and trusting in him, having faith in him, living in response to his grace and praying. In other words, the, the armor of God is ordinary, unspectacular to the world, Christian stuff. Trusting and believing in Jesus, saying your prayers. Or how about 1 Timothy 4? So Timothy is living in the occult evil center of the world, Ephesus. And apparently in Ephesus, there are some people teaching demonic teaching. And there's sort of deceiving spirit stuff going on. It's the kind of spookiest bit of the Bible. So what's the instructions? Call the exorcist? No. First, 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Read and teach your Bible. Stick to the gospel. Say the Apostles' Creed together from the heart. Or 2 Timothy 2, there's somebody who's been taken captive to do Satan's will. Sounds terrifying. What's the cure? 2 Timothy 2, 25. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Gently instructed. There's no swinging incense or saying special prayers in Latin or anything like that. Ordinary to the world, gospel stuff. So the point of today's passage is not how to combat evil spirits, and we're never called on to do that. The point of today's passage is that because of who Jesus is, what he's done, we don't need to. We don't need to worry about them. So chances are, like me, you've, you might have had weird experiences that you might, I'm pretty sure you've come across evil spirits. I remember Sharon and I were at Gamaraka Med- Medieval Fair 15 years ago. And a lady working on, there was a petting farm there, you know, you can pat a sheep or whatever. The boys were little. A lady approached Robert and Owen, and Sharon and I, and instantly, at exactly the same moment, just said, no, grab the boys and got out of there. Really spooky. But I think that's just like how God in his grace gives his vertigo when we go near a cliff edge. You know? And the answer is not to go near a cliff edge to get your heart racing all the time, is it? And spooky stories like that, they get our heart racing. It's kind of visceral response. It's exciting. But it's incredibly distracting. And really good at duping us into ignoring the 
biggest threat to us, the biggest spiritual threat to us in life, our own hearts. Jesus puts it like this in Mark 7. Jesus went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. It's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So be streetwise, don't be naive, but don't be afraid, don't get distracted. And don't forget that Satan usually gets to us through very dull, ordinary means. Put on your armor, stick with Jesus, keep preaching yourself the gospel. So, whilst we suffer from the consequences of evil in the here and now, we can do that assured by this snapshot of the future that Jesus gives us, that he has the power to save us from it. And we just trust him in prayer to do that. Rough sea, rough crowd, and has a tough crowd. Excuse me. These incidents that we've looked at, they give us a sneak preview of what Jesus has in store for us. They show us Jesus' absolute authority, even over nature, even over the spiritual realm. And these incidents also illustrate for us what Jesus warned that disciple about what being one of his followers entails. That despite being God's king with all authority, Jesus lives a hard life. He's opposed. And as his disciples, we can expect disadvantage and rejection as well. And sure enough, that's uh, the reaction to this good news story in this town, this region. These men have been freed from oppressive spirits. The whole town freed from their violence and the darkness that they brought. But what's the reaction of the locals to Jesus? Um, Could you please leave? Verse 38. Those tending to the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Well, why did they do that? Why did they want Jesus to leave? Maybe they thought Jesus, they just saw the pure power of Jesus and thought, he might be even worse than what he'd driven out, that somebody with that much power must be bad news. But I think more likely is they didn't want any change. They didn't want to have to submit to him. They didn't want to have to change their lives. See, if Jesus can boss around the most powerful beings in the region with just one word, go, what what demands might he make of them? See, to be confronted by Jesus is to be confronted by the one with all authority. So what do you do with him? You can either submit to that authority, trust him with control of your life, or you can ask him to please leave you alone. Pretend he hasn't done what he's done. Pretend he isn't who he says he is. Pretend his authority doesn't extend to you. 
One day Jesus promises he will return and boss around all evil, boss around all creation. He will demand all evil to be cast out. But in his grace, he's done everything needed so that when we come to that day, if we submit to his authority now in faith, we can escape that, the storm of that judgment. So to submit to Jesus is, is to be hidden in him, to be kept safe from that storm of judgment. The crowds in that region, they heard the good news and rejected Jesus. So that's what the gospel is, good news. It's not good advice. It's not a good story. It's news. It's a declaration that Jesus is God's king with all authority, including over what happens to us in eternity. It's a declaration of authority. Good news that gave it, he gave up his rights to do everything needed to rescue us. That eternal life can be ours if only we'll opt in by throwing our lot in with him. And it's good news that every time it's heard, prompts a response. Either away from Jesus, asking him to leave, or towards him in repentance and faith. Asking Jesus to leave leaves us in the boat on our own, facing our judgment, facing evil. Turning to Jesus, following him, will bring us hardship and rejection, persecution even. But all that will seem worth it in the fullness of time and barely worth a mention in an eternal life of joy with Jesus. To finish then, some points of application. What do we do with all of this? Well, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to confronting evil, let's just keep asking ourselves, as Jesus asked the disciples, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus. Nothing can stop God's purposes. He is with us in the boat of our lives, and we can trust him. So given that when things do seem to be going wrong, um, when we're faced with difficulties, suffering, darkness, it's right and good to ask God, how long is this going to go? Or can you please take this away? And there's dozens of Psalms that can help you do that. It's okay to say that to God. He invites us to ask him those questions. But also ask What's God doing in this situation? Given he's good, God is good, God is in total control, and God cares about this more than I do, what is God doing in this situation? It's not the script I would have written, but what is God doing in it, and how can I best serve him in that? Why are you so afraid? Let me finish with this from Romans 8. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, that we are with Jesus, that he is with us 
in the boat of our life. And he has all authority, all power over all heaven and earth. Help us to know that. Help us to be smart and streetwise and look after ourselves and each other. To stick with the gospel, keep preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other. But not to be afraid. To get on with serving you in joy. Amen.